0: Sherlock Holmes, she is always the woman. I have seldom heard him mention her name under any other name. In his eyes, she eclipses and predominates the whole of her sex. It was not that he felt any emotion akin to love for Irene Adler. All emotions, and that one particularly, were abhorrent to his cold, precise, but admirably balanced mind. He was, I take it, the most perfect reasoning and observing machine that the whole world has seen. But as a lover, he would have placed himself in a false position. He, he never spoke of the softer passions, save with a jibe and a sneer. They were admirable things for the observer, excellent for, for drawing the veil from men's motives and actions, but for the trained reasoner to admit such intrusions into his own delicate and finely adjusted temperament was to introduce a distracting factor which might throw a doubt upon all of his mental results. Grit in a sensitive instrument or a crack in one of his high, own high power lenses would not be more disturbing than a strong emotion in a nature such as his. And yet, there was but one woman to him. And that woman was the
1: late Irene Adler of dubious and questionable memory. Live from the public library of Steubenville in Jefferson County on South 4th Street in Steubenville, Ohio, the Ohio Valley Cloak and Dagger Company presents Cloak and Dagger on the Air, Holmes and Watson. This time we present an adaptation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's classic short story, A Scandal in Bohemia, originally published in the June 25th, 1891 edition of The Strand Magazine, and featuring John E. Riley as the legendary Sherlock Holmes, and Robert Gaudio as his companion and chronicler, Dr. John Watson.
0: I had seen little of Holmes lately. My marriage had drifted us away from each other. My own complete happiness and the home-centered interests which rise up around the man who first finds himself master of his own establishment were sufficient to absorb all my attention. While Holmes, who loathed every form of society with his old bohemian soul, remained in our lodgings in Baker Street, buried among his old books and alternating from week to week between cocaine and ambition, the drowsiness of the drug and the fierce energy of his own keen nature. He was still as ever deeply attracted by the study of crime and occupied his immense faculties and extraordinary powers of observation in following out those clues and clearing up all those mysteries which had been abandoned as hopeless by the official police. From time to time I heard some vague account of his doings, uh, of his summons to Odessa in the case of the Trepoff murder, of his clearing up the singular tragedy of the Atkinson brothers in Trocomalee, and finally of the mission which he had accomplished so delicately and successfully for the reigning family of Holland. Beyond these signs of his activity, however, which I merely shared with all the readers of our daily press, I knew little of my former friend and companion. One night, it was on the 20th of March, 1888, I was returning from a journey to the patient, for I had now returned to civil practice, when my way led me through Baker Street. As I passed the well-remembered door, which must always be associated in my mind with my wooing and with the dark incidents of the study in Scarlet, I was seized with a, with a keen desire to see Holmes again and to know how he was employing his extraordinary powers. His rooms were brilliantly lit, and even as I looked up, I saw his tall spare figure pass twice in a dark silhouette against the blind. He was pacing the room swiftly, eagerly, with his head sunk upon his chest, his hands clasped behind him. To me, who knew every mood and habit, his attitude and his manner told their own story. He was at work again. He had risen out of his drug-created dreams and was hot upon the scent of some new problem. I rang the bell and was shown up to the chamber, which had formerly been in part my own. His manner was not effusive, it seldom was, but but he was glad, I think, to see me. With hardly a word spoken, but with a kindly eye, he waved me to an armchair, threw across his case of cigars, and indicated a spirit case and a gasogene in the corner. Then he stood before the fire and looked me over in his singular, introspective fashion.
2: Wedlock suits you. I think, Watson, that you have put on... Seven and a half pounds since I saw you. Seven? Indeed. Hmm. I should have thought a little more. Just a trifle more, I fancy, Watson. And in practice again, I observe. You did not tell me that you intended to go into harness. But, but,
0: But then how do you know? I see
2: it. I deduce it. How do I know that you have been getting yourself very wet lately? And that you have a most
0: clumsy and careless servant girl? My dear Holmes, this is too much. You would certainly have been burned at the stake had you lived a few centuries ago. It is true that I had a country walk on Thursday and came home in in a dreadful mess. But as I have changed my clothes, I can't imagine how you deduce it. Well as to Mary Jane she's she's incorrigible and my wife has given her notice but there again i, I fail to see how you work it out <laughs> it is simplicity itself
2: my eyes tell me that on the inside of your left shoe just where the firelight strikes it the leather is scored by six almost parallel cuts mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously they have been caused by someone who has very carelessly scraped around the edges of the sole in order to remove crusted mud from it. Oh. Hence, you see, my double deduction that you have been out in vile weather, and that you had a particularly malignant boot slitting specimen of a London slavey. Oh. As to your practice, if a gentleman walks into my room smelling of idio- Idoiform, or with a black mark of nitrate of silver upon his right forefinger, oh. and a bulge on the right side of his top hat to show where he has secreted his stethoscope, oh. <laughs> I must be dull indeed, if I do not pronounce him, in,
0: to be an active member of the medical profession. When I hear you give your reasons, the thing always appears to me to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily have done it myself. Though in each successive instance of your reasoning, I'm baffled until you explain your process. Yet, I believe that my eyes are as good as yours. Quite so. Holmes lit a cigarette and threw himself down into an armchair.
2: You see, but you don't observe. Mm. The distinction is clear. (laughs) For example... You have frequently seen the steps that which lead up from the
0: hall to this room. Yes, frequently. How often? Well, some hundreds of times. Then how many are there? How many?
2: I don't know. Quite right, so. You have not observed, no. and yet you have seen. That is just my point. Now, I know that there are seventeen steps because I have both seen and observed. By the way, since you are interested in these little problems and since you are good enough to chronicle one or two of my trifling experiences you may be interested in
0: this Hmm. it came by the last post read it aloud the note was undated and without either signature nor address There will call upon you tonight at a quarter to eight o'clock, he had said, a gentleman who desires to consult you upon a matter of the very deepest moment. Your recent services to one of the royal houses of Europe have shown that you are one who may safely be trusted with matters which are of an importance which can hardly be exaggerated. This account of you we have from all quarters received. Be in your chamber, then, at that hour, and do not take it amiss if your visitor wear a mask. (laughs) This is indeed a mystery. What do you imagine that it means?
2: I have no data yet. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Hmm. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to
0: suit facts. Mm -hmm. But the note itself... What do you deduce from it? Now, I carefully examined the writing and, and the paper upon which it was written, endeavoring to imitate my companion's processes. Well, <clears throat> the man who wrote it, it was presumably well-to-do. Such paper could not be bought, bought under half a crown a packet. It is peculiarly Uh, Strong and and stiff Peculiar, that is
2: the very word Hmm. It is not an English paper at all Hmm. Hold it up to the light
0: I did so And I saw a large E With a small G A P And a large G With a small T Woven into the texture of the paper
2: What do you make of that?
0: Uh, uh, The name of the maker, no doubt Or his monogram, rather
2: Not at all The G, with a small t, stands for Gesellschaft, Hmm. which is the German for company. Hmm. It is the customary contraction like our Mm co-period. P, of course, stands for Papier. Ah. Now, for the EG, let us glance at our continental gazetteer. Hmm. Eglonitz... uh, Ah, here we are. Egria. It is in a German-speaking country in Bohemia, not far from Karlsbad, Remarkable as being the scene of the death of Wadenstein, Hmm. and for its numerous glass factories and
0: paper mills. Ah,
3: (laughs) My boy, uh,
2: what
0: do you make of that? His eyes sparkled, and he sent up a great blue triumphant cloud from his cigarette. Uh, So the paper was made in Bohemia.
2: Precisely. And the man who wrote the note is a German. Do you note the peculiar construction of the sentence? This account of you we have from all quarters received. Mm, Yes. Mm. A Frenchman or Russian could not have written that. It is the German who is so uncourteous to his verbs. It only remains, therefore, to discover what is wanted by this German who writes upon Bohemian paper and prefers wearing a mask to showing his face. Ah, and here he comes, if I am not mistaken.
0: As he spoke, there was a sharp sound of horses' hoofs and grating wheels against the curb, followed by a sharp pull at the bell. Holmes whistled. <laughs> a pear by the sound. Yes,
2: a nice little brom. With a pair of beauties 150 guineas apiece There's money in this case, Watson If there's nothing else uh,
0: Then I, I think i had better go
2: home Oh, so. no, 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 not a bit, Doctor Stay where you are I am lost without my Boswell And this promises to be interesting It would be a pity to miss it But your
3: client Never mind
2: him I may want your help And so may he
3: hmm. uh-huh.
2: Here he comes mm-hmm. Uh, Sit down in that armchair, Doctor, and give us your best attention.
0: A slow and heavy step, which had been heard upon the stairs and in the passage, paused immediately outside the door. Then there was a loud and authoritative tap. Come in. A man entered, who could hardly have been less than six feet six inches in height, with the chest and limbs of a Hercules. His dress was rich, with a richness which would in England be looked upon as akin to bad taste. Heavy bands of astrakhan were slashed across the sleeves and the fronts of his double-breasted coat, while the deep blue cloak which was thrown over his shoulders was lined with flame-colored silk and secured at the neck with a brooch which consisted of a single flaming barrel which extended halfway up his calves and which were trimmed at the tops with rich brown fur completed the impression of barbaric opulence which was suggested by his whole appearance he carried a broad-brimmed hat in his hand while he wore across the upper part of his face extending down past the cheekbones a black vizard mask which he had apparently adjusted that very moment, for his hand was still raised to it as he entered. From the lower part of his face, he appeared to be a man of strong character, with a thick hanging lip and a long straight chin, suggestive of resolution, pushed to the length of obstinacy.
3: You had my note? I told you that I would would call.
2: Uh, Pray, take a seat. This is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson, who is occasionally good enough to help me in my cases. Whom have I the honor
3: to address? You may address me as the Count von Kram, a bohemian nobleman. I understand that this gentleman, your friend, is a man of honor and discretion, whom I may trust with this a matter of the most extreme importance. If not, I should much prefer to communicate with you alone. I rose
0: to go, but
3: Holmes caught me by the wrist and pushed me back into my
0: chair.
2: It is both or none. You may say before this gentleman
3: anything which you may say to me. Then I must begin by binding you both to absolute secrecy for two years. At the end of that time, this matter will be of no importance. At present, it is not too much to say that it is of such weight. It may have an influence upon European history.
2: I promise. And I. Yeah.
3: You will uh, excuse this mask. The august person who employs me this is his agent to be you. And I may confess at once that the title by which I have just called myself is not exactly my own.
2: I was aware of it.
3: The circumstances are of such great delicacy. And every precaution has to be taken to convince what might grow to be an immense scandal. And seriously compromise one of the reigning families of Europe. To speak plainly... The matter implicates the great House of Ormstein, hereditary kings of Bohemia.
0: I was also aware of that. (laughs) Our visitor glanced with some apparent surprise at the languid, lounging figure of a man who had been no doubt depicted to him as the most incisive reasoner and most energetic agent in Europe. Holmes slowly reopened his eyes and looked impatiently at his gigantic client.
2: If your majesty would condescend to state your case, I should be better able to advise you.
0: The man sprang from his chair and paced up and down the room in uncontrollable agitation. Then, with a gesture of desperation, he
3: tore the mask from his face and hurled it upon the ground. You are right. I am the king. Why should I attempt to conceal it? Why, indeed. Your
2: Majesty had not spoken before I was aware that I was addressing Wilhelm Gatzreich Sigismund von Olmstein, Grand Duke of Castle Felstein, and hereditary king of
3: Bohemia. But you you can understand, you can understand that I am not accustomed to doing such business in my own person. Yet this matter was so delicate that I could not confide it to, to an agent without putting myself in his power. I have come incognito from Prague for the purpose of consulting you.
2: Then, pray
3: consult. Mm -hmm. The facts are briefly these. Some five years ago, during a a lengthy visit to Warsaw, I made the acquaintance of the well-known adventuress Irene Adler. The name is no doubt familiar to you.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Kindly look her up in my index, Doctor.
0: For many years, he had adopted a system of docketing all paragraphs concerning men and things, so that it was difficult to to name a subject or a person on which he could not at once furnish information. In this case, I found her biography sandwiched in between that of a a Hebrew rabbi and that of a staff commander who had written a monograph upon the deep sea fishes.
2: Mm, Let me see. Mm. Born in New Jersey in the year 1858. Contralto? Hmm? La Scala? Hmm. Prima Donna, Imperial Opera of Warsaw, yes. Retired from the operatic stage, huh? Living in London? Ah, quite so. Uh, Your Majesty, as I understand, became entangled with this young person, wrote uh, some compromising letters, and is now desirous of getting those letters back?
3: Precisely so, but how? uh, Was there
2: a secret marriage? None. No legal papers or certificates? None. Then I fail to follow, Your Majesty. If this young person should produce her letters for blackmailing or other purposes, how is she to prove their
3: authenticity? There is the writing. (laughs) Forgery. My private notepaper. Stolen. My own seal. Imitated. My photograph. Bought. Bought. We were both in the photograph.
2: Oh. Oh, dear. That is very bad. Uh, your Majesty has indeed committed an indiscretion.
3: Uh, I was mad. Insane.
2: You have compromised yourself seriously.
3: Uh, I was only crown prince then. I was young, but I am certain now.
2: It must be recovered.
3: We have tried and failed.
2: Your Majesty must pay? Must be bought?
3: Ah, uh, She will not sell.
2: Stolen, then.
3: Five attempts have been made. Twice, burglars, in my pay, ransacked her house. Once we diverted her luggage when she traveled. Twice, she has been waylaid. There has been no result. No sign of it? Absolutely none. (laughs) it is quite a pretty little problem. But a very serious one to me.
2: Very, indeed. And what does she propose to do with the photograph?
3: To ruin me. But how? I... I am about to be married. Um, so I've heard. To Clotilde Lothman von Sachs, uh, Menninger, second daughter of the King of Scandinavia. You, you know how the strict principles of her family, she is herself the very soul of delicacy, a, a shadow of a doubt as to my conduct, would bring the matter to an end.
2: And Irene Adler?
3: Threatens to send them the photograph, and she will do it. I know that she will do it. But you do not, you do not know her. She has a soul of steel. She has the face of the most beautiful of women and the mind of the most resolute of men. Rather than I should marry another woman, there are no lengths to which she would go, not go, none.
2: You are sure that she has not sent it yet? I am sure. And why?
3: Because she has said that she would send it on the day when the the betrothal was publicly proclaimed. That will be next Monday.
4: Oh,
2: oh, then we have three days yet. Hmm. (laughs) That is very fortunate, uh, as I have one or two matters of importance to look
3: into just at the present. Your Majesty will, of course, stay in London for the present. Certainly. Uh, You will find me at the Langham, under the name of the Count von Kram.
2: Then, I shall drop you a line to let you know how we progress. Uh,
3: Pray do so. I shall be all anxiety. Then, as to money... Uh, You have carte blanche. Absolutely. I tell you that I have a good but one of the provinces in my kingdom to have that photograph. And for present expenses? Uh, there are 300 pounds in gold, Ooh. 700 in notes.
2: And Mademoiselle's address?
3: Is Brioni Lodge, Serpentine Avenue, St. Jean's Wood. Uh, one other question. Was the photograph a cabinet? It was. Hmm...
2: Then good night, Your Majesty, and I trust that we shall soon have some good news for you. And good night, Watson. Mm -hmm. If you will be good enough to call tomorrow afternoon at three Mm o'clock, I should like to chat this little matter over with you.
1: Welcome to Agger on the Air's production of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's A Scandal in Bohemia. We'll continue in a moment, but first a word about our sponsor today, the Public Library of Steubenville and Jefferson County.
2: Welcome to Drama Peace Theater. I'm your host, a British guy. <laughs> Drama Piece Theatre is the anthology series that feeds your drunken habit and chronic depression with repetitive, yet evergreen tales of the human condition, all perfectly timed to help you polish off your latest bottle of gin. We're all so British, so we sound smart, sophisticated and sexy, even though our stories are pretty much soap operas. And our livers curdled and corrode with cirrhosis, much like the livers of your average Yankee bum.
5: <laughs>
2: this time, we present an original play that is uniquely American, <laughs> titled Your Public Library in Three Acts. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, Doesn't that sound riveting? (laughs) It's the kind of literary tension and intellectual intrigue you won't find in Avengers Endgame. (laughs) At least not until the credits. (laughs) And just in case you may not realize it, yes, your public library. It still exists And today's drama will remind you of the daily struggles That come with being involved in carrying on The legacy of Benjamin Franklin's original brainstorm Of borrowing his friend's books without having to buy his own And Andrew Carnegie's philanthropic pursuit of a tax write-off Take a swig, folks, for here comes Act One which we've titled Profile of an Endangered Species we take you now to your public library where our protagonist Lily and the Librarian has just encountered a rare specimen a new patron
6: Why, hello there Hello there Hey there Uh, earbuds out for a second, please.
4: Uh, what?
6: I just wanted to welcome you to your public library. I've never seen you in here before. You must be new around these here shelves. (laughs)
4: Well, the coffee shop was closed, and McDonald's makes me fat. You're the only place left with free Wi-Fi.
6: Oh, so it was our Wi-Fi that brought you in, not our stacks and stacks of voluminous... Tomes from all genres and authors.
4: Nope, I've got a Kindle.
6: (laughs) But you haven't lived until you've picked up a book. Here, let me show you. Give me your hand. Oh, do you feel it? The tactile thrill that surges through your fingertips at just the touch, the mere graze, the gentle caress of each page. The promise, the anticipation of what lies ahead on the next... Oh, gives me chills I haven't had since my prom.
4: Nope. Just here for the Wi-Fi.
6: (laughs) Oh, but sir, we have books of any genre from every author imaginable. You want the classics? We've got many in their original second editions some decades or centuries old. You want cardboard cutouts? Characters with cliched, convoluted conclusions? We have a whole section devoted to James Patterson.
4: Do you know how many people have touched those books? No one's touched my Kindle but me.
6: Oh, but that's part of the library experience, touching what so many others have touched. Oh, sir. Sir. Earbuds, please.
4: Well, Look, just what do you want?
6: I want you to fall in love with your public library. So many people forget I exist. We exist. And we have so much here to offer you to rock your world. You want involvement? We have events and clubs and activities practically every day of the week. Why, you might even meet someone. A nice girl, perhaps.
4: Yeah, I got tender. Oh
6: but here, here you can swipe right or swoop left down any aisle. Mystery, science, romance. After six on Tuesday, I wear the special librarian glasses. <laughs> Where are you going, sir? I just wanted to introduce myself. I mean, I was just... Oh, well. He'll be back. After all, we have free Wi-Fi.
2: (laughs) Act Two. Not over yet. (laughs) The senator and the librarian
0: or other Senate appropriations sub, sub, subcommittee will now come to order. Senator
4: Pompas P. Pomphandle presiding. Thank you, thank you. Be seated. As you know, we have before us today a proposal from the president of these here United States to eliminate all federal library funding. All in favor say yeah. Yay! Measure passes. Now, on to the border Uh, wall. uh, excuse me, Senator, Uh, but... Who who dares speak in these here hearings? I've got lunch in 15 minutes, and we've got a lot of deficit spending to do before then.
6: Lillian, the librarian, sir.
4: Librarian? We haven't outsourced those jobs yet to some call center in Calcutta.
6: Well, uh, Senator Pomphandle... That's me. I was called to testify before this committee on the importance of federal library funding. After all, the, pre- the president is proposing... Oh, God
4: bless that man, my favorite president and yours. Why, just the other day, I saw the image of Christ in his follicles. It was a miracle, or the way the die set.
6: Sir, I- I'm here to plead with you and all of Congress to bypass his proposal. Let me ask
4: you a question, Miss Lillian. Does anyone even use libraries anymore?
6: Absolutely, Senator.
4: You sure? Because I hear tell of this thing called the Kendall. I mean, I don't know from personal experience. I'm so busy being a patriot and guessing what the president wants me to do today that I hire people to read for me. Right, Pencil Dick? Uh, that's, that's Dick Purcell, sir. Right. Right. Pencil Dick. He's my chief reader. Sums it all up in 14-point font, triple-spaced on a single page, texted to me on my iPhone. Hit delete. Turn on Hannity, rinse, repeat.
6: <laughs> well, sir, Kindles are great, and, and we use those too, but we don't require people to pay for our books, whether they're e-books or real books.
4: You don't, you don't, what's this you say?
6: Senator, public libraries are a necessity for communities and benefit all ages, lifestyles, and incomes. Our services are available to everybody. Anybody can come in and access our computers, our books, our research materials. Whoa, whoa,
4: whoa. Hold the rotary phone right there, Miss Lillian. You said all, everybody, anybody. Did I hear you correctly?
6: Why, yes, sir. We pride ourselves on the free services. Free? Absolutely. We believe the library should be open to all. Open
4: to... That sounds like socialism, if you ask me. Socialism? Socialism. And America will never be a socialist country. Not on my watch. Now, about that border wall. Oh, yeah. And have we printed that extra $34 billion for the defense budget yet? We recess tomorrow, people. And I got lunch in five.
2: Act three. Marion the Millennial librarian.
5: Uh, hey. Hi.
6: Oh, uh, the anime section is right over there. Anime? Excuse me,
5: are you profiling me? No, I just... Well, I was just... You were assuming based on my looks that I'm into anime? Well, I mean the gold nose ring, the long purple
6: fingernails, the detached stare, the torn jeans... Oh, I'm sorry. The cosplay convention is actually a couple blocks over in the abandoned Kmart.
5: I'm not cosplaying.
6: You're not? Oh. Well, if you're looking to do charcoal sketches of rock stars who died of drug overdoses, we have a room Charcoal
5: sketch? You're still profiling me. I'm sorry.
6: Uh, maybe this is a failure to communicate. We have a lot of that with your generation. Let's start again. <clears throat> okay. You're in a library libraries are something that were invented before you were born. But we don't expect you to know about us. We understand. Your generation is one unto itself. We're old and prefer communal experiences, and you... I know
5: what a library is.
6: Oh. Well, then you must be here for the quiet. I knew we could find common ground. Libraries still pride themselves on quiet. Feel free to sit anywhere you want. You can be on your phone, your tablet, and we won't bother you. I know your generation doesn't like to be bothered, which is still one of the benefits of a library.
5: We leave you alone. Actually, I'm the new librarian. The new librarian? Yeah, just got hired. You're a
6: millennial and you survived a job
5: interview? Were your parents okay with how it went? (laughs) My parents didn't come with me. You see, I just graduated with a master's in library science. You wanted to be a librarian? (gasps) There you go again. You think millennials don't want libraries? Well, I just assumed. I grew up hanging out in libraries. It's the best place to just go chill or read or have a conversation or find out something new. Wow. You're a millennial, and we're speaking the same language. You do know more millennials visited a library in 2016 than any other generation, including yours, right? But don't you have a Kindle app? Yeah, and the Libby app. I check out ebooks all the time, and real books. Libraries are like the university of the people, you know? It's like the one place you can go- To learn not to say like all the time? No, to not be judged. Ah, uh, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> We get it all the time. It's good clickbait. But my generation is really into community. We want that organic experience of individual yet interpersonal experience back. We want our lives to feel real, not virtual all the time, which is one reason why we want libraries to survive. Welcome aboard, Marion, the millennial librarian.
6: There's hope for us yet.
2: And so concludes your public library in three acts. Another rousing episode of Dramar Peace Theater, the anthology series that makes you want to tie one up, <laughs> <laughs> or flip to the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> I'm your host, a British guy, and this is, what's that, why what the music stop? oh, oh cripes, we have an epilogue. <laughs> oh. Every time, just when I'm about to pass out, we have an epilogue. Uh, uh, here, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, here it is. The accidental donor.
1: Uh, hi there. I, I, I'd like to renew a, a, a few books. What's your name? Uh, this is, uh, Pete or, or Simon. I, I can never remember what name my card is under.
6: Okay, got it. Looks like you've checked out 16 books.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a little ambitious. I thought I could read them all, uh, you know, read one a day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I just like to renew them.
6: Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. You've already renewed them too many times.
1: Oh, really? I've had them that long? huh?
6: You have. And now there's a matter of the fine.
1: Oh, the fine. Well, how much is it? (laughs)
6: $135.
1: (laughs) Whoa.
6: Yeah. And I'm afraid you won't be able to check anything else out until you pay it.
1: Oh, oh, no. Not again. Again? Well, this might happen at every library I've ever gone to. I might be a repeat offender.
6: <laughs> we prefer to call you an accidental donor.
1: So I guess the, uh, these other books I wanted to check out? I can't check them out?
6: Sorry. Not until you pay your fine.
1: Ugh. You wouldn't happen to have installment plans, would you?
6: No, but, um, have you ever heard of a Kindle?
1: <laughs> and, finally,
2: it's over. <laughs> Join us next time on Drama Peace Theater when we'll present part one of a 36-part adaptation of Anna Karenina. <laughs> Hide the sharp objects, kids, and up the alcohol content. Until then, I am a British guy stuck on American television. Save me,
7: please.
1: <laughs> the cast of Your Public Librarian Three Acts included Johnny Riley as a British guy, Emily Horrez as Lillian the Librarian, Noah Hilton as Noah the New Patron, Robert Gaudio as the Congressional Page, Rob DeSantis as Dick Purcell, Chris Carter as Senator Pompous P. Pomp and Bethany Fernbaugh as Marion the Millennial Librarian. I'm glad the senator's name was as amusing to you guys as it was to me. <laughs> Sometimes when you're sitting alone writing at night, you're not sure sure if it's funny or not. Our thanks to the Public Library of Steubenville in Jefferson County for sponsoring this month's Cloak & Dagger on the Air. We would like to congratulate them on the upgrades and the renovations they've made to their building because our show is so heavily focused and based in literature and the wonder of imagination. We're honored to contribute in some small way to the programs and events they offer here and that they bring to the community. We urge you to take advantage of them. And we thank you, and we thank all libraries for continuing to be a bastion of education and enlightenment and entertainment for all people, no matter who you are or where you come from. And now, Act Two of Cloak & Dagger on the Air's production of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's 1891 short story, a Scandal in Bohemia, starring Johnny Raya, Johnny Riley, Robert Gaudio, Rob DeSantis, and Carissa Martin. At three o'clock
0: precisely, I was at Baker Street, but the Holmes had not yet returned. The landlady informed me that he had left the house shortly after eight o'clock in the morning. I sat down beside the fire, however... With the intention of awaiting him, however long he might be. I was already deeply interested in his inquiry, for, for though it was surrounded by none of the grim and strange features which were associated with the two crimes which I had already recorded, still, the nature of the case and the exalted station of his client gave it a character of its own. Indeed, Apart from the nature of the investigation, which my friend had on hand, there there was something in his masterly grasp of of a situation, uh, and his keen, incisive reasoning, which had made it a pleasure to me to study his system of work and to follow the quick, subtle methods by which he disentangled the most inextricable mysteries. So accustomed was I to his invariable success that, the very possibility that his failing had ceased to enter my head. It was close upon four before the door opened, and a drunken-looking groom, ill-kempt and side-whiskered, with an inflamed face and disreputable clothes, walked into the room. Accustomed as I was to my friend's amazing powers in the use of disguises, I had to look three times before I was certain that it was indeed he. Holmes! With a nod, he, he vanished into the bedroom. Once he emerged in five minutes, tweed suited and respectable as of old. Putting his hands into his pockets, he stretched out his legs in front of the fire and laughed heartily for some minutes. (laughs) Well, really? (laughs) What what, what is it? It's quite too funny. Uh, I'm sure
2: you could never guess how I employed my morning or what I ended by doing.
0: (laughs) I can't imagine. I suppose that you have been uh, watching the Habits and perhaps the house uh, of Miss Irene Adler.
2: Quite, so. But the sequel was rather unusual. Hmm. I will tell you, however. I left the house at a little after 8 o'clock this morning in the character of a groom out of work. Mm There is a wonderful sympathy and freemasonry among horsey men. <laughs> Be one of them, and you will know all there is to know. I soon found Bryony Lodge. Mm-hmm. It is a bijou villa with a garden at the back, but built out in front, right up to the road, two stories, tub locked to the door, large sitting room on the right side, well furnished, with long windows almost to the floor and those preposterous English window fasteners which a child could open. Behind, there was nothing remarkable, save that the passage window could be reached from the top of the coach house. Mm. I walked round it and examined it closely from every point of view, but without noting anything else of interest. I then lounged down the street and found, as I expected, that there was a muse in a lane which runs down by one wall of the garden. I lent the ostlers a hand in rubbing down their horses and received in exchange tuppence, a glass of half and half, two fills of shag tobacco, and... As much information as I could desire about Miss Adler, Mm. uh, to say nothing of half dozen other people in the neighborhood in whom I was not in the least interested, (laughs) but whose biographies I was compelled to listen to. (laughs) And what of Irene Adler? Oh. She has turned all the men's heads down in that part. (laughs) She is the daintiest thing under a bonnet on this planet. (laughs) So say the serpentine muse to a man. She lives quietly, sings at concerts, drives out at five every day, and returns at seven sharp for dinner. Seldom goes out at other times, except when she sings. Has only one male visitor, but a good deal of him. He is dark, handsome, and dashing never calls less than once a day, and often twice. Hmm. He is a Mr. Godfrey Norton of the Inner Temple. Oh, See the advantages of a cabman as a confidant? <laughs> they had driven him home a dozen times from Serpentine Muse, and knew all about him. When I had listened to all they had to tell me, I began to walk up and down near Briony Lodge once more, to think over my plan of campaign. Mm -hmm. This Godfrey Norton was evidently an important factor in the matter. He was a lawyer. Mm -hmm. That sounded ominous. Mm -hmm. What was the relation between them and what the object of his repeated visits? Mm -hmm. Was she his client, his friend, or his mistress? If the former, she had probably transferred the photograph to his keeping, if the latter, mm, it was less likely. Mm. On the issue of this question depended whether I should continue my work at Bryony Lodge or turn my attention to the Gentlemen's chambers in the temple. Mm. It was a delicate point, and it widened the field of my inquiry. Yes. I fear, oh, I fear that I bore you, bore you with these details, uh, but I have to let you see my little difficulties if you are to understand the situation.
0: Oh, no, 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 I'm following you closely.
2: Mm. "'I was still balancing the matter in my mind
0: "'when a handsome
2: cab drove up to Bryony Lodge "'and a gentleman sprang out. "'He was a remarkably handsome man, "'dark, aquiline, and moustached, "'evidently the man of whom I had heard. "'He appeared to be in a great hurry, "'shouted to the cabman to wait, "'and brushed past the maid who opened the door "'with the air of a man who was thoroughly at home. "'He was in the house about a half an hour,' and I could catch glimpses of him in the windows of the sitting room, pacing up and down, talking excitedly, and waving his arms. Of her, I could see nothing. Presently, he emerged, looking even more flurried than before. As he stepped up to the cab, he pulled a gold watch from his pocket and looked at it earnestly. He shouted,
4: Drive like the devil, first to Gross and Hankey's in Regent Street, and then to the Church of St. Monica in the Edgware Road. Half a guinea if you do it in 20 minutes. Away
2: they went, and I was just wondering whether I should not do well to follow them when up the lane came a neat little Landau, the coachman with his coat only half-buttoned, his tie under his ear, while all the tags of his harness were sticking out of the buckles. It hadn't pulled up before she shot out of the hall door and into it. I only caught a glimpse of her at the moment, but... She was a lovely woman, with a face that a man might die for.
7: The Church of St. Monica, John, and half a sovereign if you reach it in 20 minutes.
2: This was quite too good to lose, Watson. I was just balancing whether I should run for it, or whether I should perch behind her landau, when a cab came through the street. The the driver looked twice at such shabby fare, (laughs) but I jumped in he could object. The Church of St. Monica, and half a sovereign if you reach it in 20 minutes. It was 25 minutes to 12, and of course, it was clear enough what was in the wind. My cabbie drove fast. I don't think I ever drove faster. But the horses of the others were there before us. The cab and the Landau, with their steaming horses, were in front of the door when I arrived. Hmm. I paid the man and hurried into the church. There was not a soul there Save the tomb who I had followed and a surplus clergyman who seemed to be expostulating with them. Mm. They were all three standing in a knot in front of the altar. I lounged up the side aisle like any other idler who has dropped into a church. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, to my surprise, the three at the altar faced round to me. (laughs) And Godfrey Norton came running as hard as he could towards me.
4: Oh, dear. You'll do. Come, come. Uh, w- what then? Come, man, come. Only three minutes or it won't be legal. I was
2: half dragged up to the altar. And be- before I knew where I was, found myself mumbling responses which were whispered in my ear <laughs> and vouching for things which I knew nothing and generally assisting in the secure tying up of Irene Adler Spinster to Godfrey Norton Bachelor. Uh-oh. It was all done in an instant. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there was the gentleman thanking me on the one side and the lady on the other while the clergyman beamed on me in front. (laughs) It was the most preposterous position in which I ever found myself in my life (laughs) and it was the thought of it that started me (laughs) laughing just now. (laughs) It seems that there had been some informality about their license Mm -hmm. that the clergyman absolutely refused to marry them without a witness of some sort. Mm and that my lucky appearance saved the bridegroom from having to sally out into the streets in search of a best man. The bride gave me a sovereign, and I mean to wear it on my watch chain in memory of the
0: occasion. (laughs) This is a very unexpected turn of affairs. And what then? Well, I found my plans very
2: seriously menaced. Hmm. It looked as if the pair might take an immediate departure and so necessitate very prompt and energetic measures on my part. At the church door, however, they separated. He back to the temple, she to her own house. Mm -mm.
7: I shall drive out in the park at five as usual.
2: I heard no more. They drove away in different directions. I went off to make my own arrangements.
0: Which are? (sighs)
2: Some cold beer and a and uh, some cold beef. Yes. I have been too busy to think of food. And I am likely to be busier still this evening. Mm-hmm. By the way, Doctor, I shall want your cooperation. Well, I
0: should be delighted.
2: You don't mind breaking the law? Not in the least. No running a chance of arrest?
0: Not in a good cause. Oh. Eh? The cause is excellent. Then I am your man.
2: I was sure that I might rely on you.
0: What is it that you wish?
2: Uh, When Mrs. Turner has uh, brought in the tray, I will make it clear to you.
0: Hmm?
2: Now I must discuss it, uh, for I have not much time. Hmm. It is nearly five now. In two hours, we must be on the scene of action. Miss Irene, or Madame, (laughs) uh, rather, returns from her drive at seven. We must be at Bryony Lodge to meet her.
0: And what then?
2: You must leave that to me. Mm? I have already arranged what is to occur. There is only one point on which I must insist. Mm? You must not interfere, come what may. Mm? You understand? I
0: am to be neutral?
2: To do nothing whatever. (laughs) There will probably be some small unpleasantness. Do not join in it. Hmm? It will end in my being conveyed into the house Four or five minutes afterwards, the sitting room window will open You are to station yourself close to that open window Yes You are to watch me, for I will be visible to you
0: Yes
2: And when I raise my hand, so You will throw into the room what I give you to throw And will, at the same time, raise the cry of fire You quite follow me. Yes, entirely. It is nothing formidable. It is an ordinary plumber's smoke rocket, (laughs) fitted with a cap at either end to make it self-lighting. Your task is confined to that. When you raise your cry of fire, it will be taken up by quite a number of people. You may then walk to the end of the street, and I will rejoin you in ten
0: minutes. I hope that I have made myself clear. Yes, and I am to remain neutral, to get near the window, to watch you, and at the signal to throw in this object, then to raise the cry of fire, and to wait you at the corner of the street. Precisely. <laughs> then you may entirely rely on me. That is excellent.
2: I think perhaps it is almost time that I prepare for the new role I have to play.
0: He disappeared into his bedroom and returned in a few minutes in the character of an amiable, simple minded, nonconformist clergyman. His broad black hat, his baggy trousers, his white tie, his sympathetic smile, and general look of peering and benevolent curiosity, which were, were such as Mr. John Hare alone could have equaled. It was not merely that Holmes changed his costume. His expression, his manner, his very soul seemed to vary with every fresh part that he assumed. The stage lost a fine actor, even as science lost an acute reasoner when Holmes became a specialist in crime. It was a quarter past six when we left Baker Street, and it was still wanted 10 minutes to the hour when we found ourselves in Serpentine Avenue. It was already dusk, and the lamps were just being lighted as we paced up and down in front of Briony Lodge, waiting for the coming of its occupant. The house was just such as it had pictured from Sherlock Holmes' succinct description but the locality appeared to be less private than I expected. On the contrary, from a small street in a quiet neighborhood, it was remarkably animated. There was a group of shabbily dressed men smoking and laughing in a corner, a scissors grinder with his wheel, two guardsmen who were flirting with a nurse girl, and several well-dressed young men who were lounging up and down with cigars in their mouths. You see, this marriage rather simplifies matters. The
2: photograph becomes a double-edged weapon now. Oh. The chances are that she would be as averse to its being seen by Mr. Godfrey Norton as our client is to its coming to the eyes of his princess. Uh-huh. Now, the question is, where are we to find the photograph? Uh, where indeed? It is most unlikely that she carries it about her. It is cabinet-sized, too large for easy concealment about a woman's dress, She knows that the king is capable of having her waylaid and searched. Two attempts of that sort have already been made. We may take it then that she does not carry it about her.
0: Well, where
2: then? Her banker or her lawyer? Mm -hmm. There is that double possibility. But I am inclined to think neither. Mm -hmm. Women are naturally secretive. And they like to do their own secreting. (laughs) Why should she hand it over to anyone else? She could trust her own guardianship. Mm-hmm. She could not tell what indirect or political influence might be brought to bear upon a businessman. Besides... Remember that she had resolved to use it within a few days. It must be where she can lay her hands upon it. It must be in
0: her own house. But, but, but it has twice been burgled. They did not know how to look. Uh, but how will you look? I will not look. So, so what then?
2: I will get her to show me. Oh, but she will refuse. She will not be able to. Uh, but I hear the rumble of wheels. It, it is her carriage. Now
0: carry out my orders to the letter? As he spoke, the gleam of the side lights of the carriage came round the curve of the avenue. It was a smart little Landau which rattled up to the door of Briony Lodge as it pulled up. One of the loafing men at the corner dashed forward to open the door in the hope of earning a copper, but was elbowed away by another loafer, who had rushed up with the same intention. A fierce quarrel broke out, which was increased by two guardsmen, who took sides with one of the loungers, and by the scissors grinder, who was equally hot upon the other side, a blow was struck, and in an instant the lady who had stepped from her carriage was the center of a little knot of flushed and struggling men, who struck savagely at each other with their fists and their sticks. See oh, here, no, my no, good no, friends. No, it so Please don't okay. Holmes dashed into the crowd to protect the lady, but just as he reached her, he gave a cry and dropped to the ground with the blood running freely down his face. At his fall, the guardsmen took to their heels in one direction, loungers to the other, while a number of other better-dressed people who had watched the scuffle without taking part in it crowded in to help the lady and to attend to the injured man. Irene Adler, as I will call her, had hurried up the steps, but she stood at the top with her superb figure outlined against the Lights of the hall
7: looking back into the street. Is the poor gentleman much hurt? No, no, there's life in
4: him, but he'll be gone before you can get him to the hospital. Oh,
5: he's a brave fellow. They would have had that lady's person. Watch if it hadn't been for him. They were a gang and a rough one, too.
4: Oh, he's breathing now. He can't lie in the street. May we bring him in, Mom?
6: Surely. Bring him into the sitting room. There is a comfortable sofa. This way, please. Oh, poor fellow, I hope he's all right. Oh,
0: my Slowly and solemnly, he was borne into Briony Lodge and laid out in the principal room where, while I still observed the proceedings from my post by the window. The lamps had been lit, but the blinds had not been drawn so that I could see Holmes as he lay upon the couch. I do not know whether he was seized with compunction at that moment for the part he was playing, but I know that I never felt more heartily ashamed of myself in my life than when I saw this beautiful creature against whom I was conspiring or or the grace and kindliness with which she waited upon this poor injured man. And yet it would be the blackest treachery to Holmes to draw back now from the part which he had entrusted in me. I hardened my heart and took the smoke rocket from under my ulster. After all, I thought, we are not injuring her, we are but preventing her from injuring another. Holmes sat up on the couch. I saw him motion like a man who is in need of air. A maid rushed across and threw open the window. At the same instant, I saw him raise his hand, and at the signal, I tossed my rocket into the room with a cry of Fire! The word was no sooner out of my mouth than the whole crowd of spectators, well dressed and ill, gentlemen, officers, and servants' maids, joined in a general shriek of Fire! Fire! Thick clouds of smoke curled through the room and out the open window, and I caught a glimpse of rushing figures. Now, please, my friends, there's no need to be alarmed. It's but a schoolboy play. And a moment later, the voice of Holmes from within assuring them that it was just a false alarm, and slipping through the shouting crowd, I made my way to the corner of the street. In ten minutes, rejoiced to find my friend's arm in mine and to get away from the scene of the uproar. He walked swiftly and in silence for some minutes until we had turned down one of the quiet streets which led toward the Edgware Road.
2: You did it very nicely, Doctor. Nothing could have been better. It is all right.
0: You have the photograph.
2: I know where it is. Uh, And how did you find out? She showed me, as I told you she would. I am still in the dark. (laughs) I do not wish to make a mystery. The matter was perfectly simple. You, of course, saw that everyone in the street was an accomplice. Mm -hmm. They were all engaged for the evening. I guessed as much. Then, when the row broke out, I had a little moist red paint in the palm of my hand. I rushed forward, fell down, clapped my hand to my face, and became a piteous spectacle. It is an old trick. Uh, This also I could fathom. Then they carried me in. She was bound to have me in. What else could she do? and into her sitting room, which was the very room which I suspected. It lay between that and her bedroom, and I was determined to see which. They laid me on a couch. I motioned for air. They were compelled to open the window, and you had your chance. How did that help you? It was all important. When a woman thinks that her house is on fire... Her instinct is at once to rush to the thing which she values most. It is a perfectly overpowering impulse, Mm -hmm. and I have more than once taken advantage of it. In the case of the Darlington substitution scandal, it was of use to me, Mm -hmm. and also in the Arnsworth Castle business. Mm A married woman grabs at her baby. An unmarried one reaches for her jewel box. (laughs) Now, it was clear to me that Our Lady of Today had nothing in the house more precious to her than what we are in quest of. Mm. She would rush to secure it. The alarm of fire was admirably done. The, The smoke and shouting were enough to shake nerves of steel. She responded beautifully. The photograph is in a recess behind a sliding panel just above the right bell pole. She was there in an instant, and I caught a glimpse of it as she half drew it out. Hmm. When I cried out that it was a false alarm, she replaced it, glanced at the rocket, rushed from the room, and I have not seen her since. I rose and, making my excuses, escaped from the house. I, I hesitated whether to attempt to secure the photograph at once... But the coachman had come in, and as he was watching me narrowly, it seemed safer to wait. A little over-precipitance may ruin all. And and now? Our quest is practically finished. Hmm. I shall call with the king tomorrow, and with you. If you care to come with us. uh, We will be shown into the sitting room to wait for the lady, but it is probable that when she comes, she may find neither us nor the photograph. Mm. It might be a satisfaction to his majesty to regain it with his own hands.
0: uh, And when will you call?
2: At eight in the morning. She will not be up. (laughs) So that we shall have a clear field. Besides, we must be prompt... For this marriage may mean a complete change in her life and habits. I must wire to the king without delay.
0: We had reached Baker Street and had stopped at the door. He was searching his pockets for the key when someone passing said...
7: Good night, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Uh,
0: There were several people on the pavement at the time, but the greeting appeared to come from a slim youth in an Ulster who had hurried by. I've heard that voice before... Now, I wonder who the deuce that could have been. I slept at, at Baker Street that night, and we were engaged upon our, our toast and coffee in the morning when the King of Bohemia rushed into the room.
3: Ah, you, you have really got it? Not yet. Uh, but you have hopes.
0: I have hopes.
3: Then, then come. I am all impatience to be gone. We must have a cab. No, no, my, my broom is waiting. Then that will simplify matters.
0: We descended and started off once more for Bryony Lodge. Irene Adler
2: is married. Married? Then? Yesterday. But To whom? To an English lawyer named Norton. Art! She could not love him. I am in hopes that she does. And why in hopes? Because it would spare your majesty all fear of future annoyance. If the lady loves her husband, she does not love your majesty. If she does not love your majesty, there is no reason why she
3: should interfere with your majesty's plan. It is true. And yet, uh, well, I wish she had been of my own station, but a queen she would have made.
0: His majesty relapsed into a moody silence, which was not broken until we drew up in Serpentine Avenue. The door of Briny Lodge was open and an elderly woman stood upon the steps. She watched us with a sardonic eye as we stepped from the broom.
6: Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I believe.
2: I am Mr. Holmes.
6: Indeed. My mistress told me that you were likely to call. She left this morning with her husband by the 515 train from Charing Cross for the continent. What?
2: Do you mean that she has left England?
6: Never to return. Oh. Uh, And the papers? All is lost.
0: We shall see. He pushed past the servant and rushed into the drawing room, followed by the king and myself. The furniture was scattered about in every direction with dismantled shelves and open drawers, as if the lady had hurriedly ransacked them before her flight. Holmes rushed at the bell pool, tore back the small sliding shutter, plunging his hand, pulled out a photograph and a letter. The photograph was of Irene Adler herself in evening dress. The letter was superscribed to Sherlock Holmes, Esquire, to be left till called for. My friend tore it open and we all three read it together. It was dated at midnight of the preceding night and ran in this way.
7: My dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, you really did it very well. You took me in completely, until after the alarm of fire, I had not a suspicion. But then when I found how I had betrayed myself, I began to think. I had been warned against you months ago. I had been told that if the king employed an agent, it would certainly be you, and your address had been given me. Yet with all this, you made me reveal what you wanted to know. Even after I became suspicious, I found it hard to think evil of such a dear, kind old clergyman. But, you know, I have been trained as an actress myself. Male costume is nothing new to me. I often take advantage of the freedom which it gives. So I sent John the coachman to watch you, ran upstairs, got into my walking clothes, as I call them, and came down just as you departed. Well, I followed you to your door and so made sure that I was really an object of interest to the celebrated Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Then I rather imprudently wished you good night and started for the temple to see my husband. We both thought the best resource was flight when pursued by so formidable an antagonist. So you will find the nest empty when you call tomorrow. As to the photograph, your client may rest in peace. I love and am loved by a better man than he. The king may do what he will without hindrance from one whom he has cruelly wronged. I keep it only to safeguard myself and to preserve a weapon which will always secure me from any steps which he might take in the future. I leave a photograph which he might care to possess. And I remain, dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, very truly yours, Irene Norton, knee
3: Adler. Oh, what a woman! Oh, what a woman! Did, did I not tell you how quick and resolute she was? Would she have not made an admirable queen? Ah, it is not a pity that she was not on my level.
2: From what I have seen of the lady, she seems indeed to be on a very different level to your majesty. I am sorry that I have not been able to bring your majesty's business to a more successful conclusion.
3: Uh, On the contrary, my dear sir, nothing could be more successful. I know that that her word is inviolate. The photograph is now as safe as if it were in the fire.
2: I am glad to hear your majesty say so.
3: I am immensely indebted to you. Uh, Pray, tell me in what way can I reward you? This uh, emerald snake ring, perhaps? Your Majesty
2: has something which I should value even more highly.
3: You have but to name it.
2: This photograph.
3: Irene's photograph?
2: Certainly, if you wish it. I thank you, Majesty. Then there is no more to be done in the matter. I have the honor to wish you a very
0: good morning. He bowed, and turning away without observing the hand which the king had stretched out to him, he set off in my company for his chambers. And that was how a great scandal threatened to affect the kingdom of Bohemia, and how the best plans of Mr. Sherlock Holmes were beaten by a woman's wit. He used to make merry over the cleverness of women, but I have not heard him do that of late. And when he speaks of Irene Adler, or when he refers to her photograph, it is always under the honorable title of The Woman.
1: (laughs) And so closes Cloak and Dagger on the Air's presentation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's 1891 short story A Scandal in Bohemia. Specially adapted for Cloak and Dagger by Pete Fernbaugh and starring John E. Riley as Sherlock Holmes, Robert Gaudio as Dr. John Watson, Rob DeSantis as Count Van Crom, uh, Chris Carter as Godfrey Norton, Carissa Martin as Irene Adler, Bethany Fernbaugh as Woman Number One, and Emily Juarez as Woman Number Two and The Elderly Woman. Please give a special round of applause to Alan Hall, former director of this library. (laughs) For being our community guest star today. Thank you very much, Alan, and happy retirement. <laughs> um, we really appreciate him being with us. Our sound effects were provided by the Holy Foley Molies, uh, directed by Carissa Martin. And featuring Noah Hilton, Bethany Fernbaugh, and David Gaudio. Jane Meredith managed our recording and sound, and our in-house composer, the unmatchable Lakin Weaver, who provided the original score.
5: Cloak and Dagger on the Air, Holmes and Watson is a presentation of the Ohio Valley Cloak and Dagger Company. Our special thanks to the Public Library of Steubenville and Jefferson County for hosting and sponsoring us this afternoon. The library is located at 407 South 4th Street here in Steubenville.
4: This episode And all episodes of Cloak and Dagger on the Air can be heard on Midnight Scario, a podcast devoted to seeing reality through the third eye. Midnight Scario can be found on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to like and follow their Facebook page.
7: The Cloak and Dagger on the Air theme, The Sealed Kingdom, is an original composition by Adrian von Ziegler and used with permission of the artist. Adrian's work can be found on iTunes and YouTube.
4: Cloak and Dagger on the air is a presen- presentation of future past productions. Lake and Weaver is our music director, Shane Meredith is our sound manager, and our associate producer is Alicia Ford.
3: Our acting troupe is The Wayward Saints, and Pete Fernbaugh is our writer and executive producer. All original material in this program is copyright 2019 Pete Fernbaugh, and all original music is copyright 2019 Lake and Weaver. For information on upcoming Cloak and Dagger productions, please like and follow our Facebook page. Just search for the Ohio Valley Cloak & Dagger Company.
1: Holmes & Watson will return later this year in a brand new adaptation of The Red-Headed League. In the meantime, please please join us at 7 p.m. on Saturday, June 8th for Cloak & Dagger on the air Countdown for Blast Off, a special science fiction themed episode. And we'll be announcing the location in a few weeks. All well calculated to thrill and chill you to the bone. Until then... We remain your obedient servants. Good afternoon.